I'm Laura Marsh, a field biologist and avid conservationist. I know firsthand that finding wildlife work is tough. You're often underpaid, undervalued, and burnt out. These are the stories and interviews from people just like you to help find solutions to the systemic problems in our industry and bring more equity and justice to the rich diversity of life on our planet. We are shaking up the world of conservation through Nova Conversations. Hello, everyone. Welcome again to Nova Conversations. This is season two, and I'm so excited because I have a headset and an actual mic, so I'm not having to lean into my computer to talk and get the video all weird and messed up, but (laughs) I'm just really glad that we're back. I have so many thoughts and so many things to share. So where do I begin? First of all, I just want to welcome you back. If you haven't already, please go listen to some of the episodes from season one. We had such great discussions with people. Um, Jesse Panazzolo from Lonely Conservationists, Karina Newsom, Alex Troutman, Brooke Mitchell Norman from uh, Rewildology podcast. We did a crossover episode there and so many other really good conversations. And this season is just an extension of the same. We're going to be having excellent conversations with awesome people and I can't wait to share more of them. So um, this first episode, I want to talk about unpaid work in conservation. And I gave an Instagram live about it and I have been thinking about this for years and want to, again, just emphasize the fact that we're going to have a nuanced dialogue. We're going to have different perspectives and hear from all sorts of people. And it may be, it might be what you think is right. And it might be what you don't think is right. So I just want to advocate for hearing all points of view, all perspectives, especially people who are conservationists as well, because Yeah, I don't want to pit conservationists against conservationists. So what I mean by that is I'm seeing, you know, this this movement of folks who are saying, like, let's pay our interns and let's pay our technicians and no unpaid internships ever. And I agree with it wholeheartedly. Um, But I also want to be clear and advocate, or I also want to be clear And say that the conservationists, many of whom are working full-time unpaid or little pay, um, those, those volunteers and interns and technicians are working for a larger entity that is also unpaid, lack of pay. This larger entity is like a research organization or a nonprofit who struggles with pay. Um, Some of the organizations I've talked to don't get their funding from like the manager standpoint or the CEO or the director of an organization doesn't get that money from the organization itself because that organization is so lacking in pay. Like it just comes back to the money. So if we say pay our interns, pay our techs, we also have to provide a solution to where that money is coming from. Because the bottom issue, the bottom line here is that it's about money and it's about accountability. Because there are, I'm sure there are organizations who are not paying their interns and technicians and volunteers, of course not volunteers, but 
we're not paying those people. And the CEO or director is making bank and that sucks. And that's exploitative to a huge degree. And that's ridiculous. But for the most part, conservationists <laughs> don't have money. <laughs> so we, we need to flesh out the conversation. We need to talk about this. Um, so I also did want to share a story with you. Uh, because I am an advocate for being wise about how we share things on social media and making sure we hear from diverse perspectives, I would like to share a story. I'm going to make it very vague and very generalized. Uh, this is something that happened to me recently. A um, prominent person in our industry, in our sphere, on a social media account. I won't name which one. Again, very vague. Uh, we, I was friends with this person, and this person helped me through some difficult times. And we communicated back and forth, and I asked the person many questions, and they helped me out a lot. But then this individual didn't like one thing that I said. I'm not, I'm not even really sure what happened, but they bashed me on their social media account publicly, and I didn't really know why. Uh, so I approached them, and we had a conversation, and it was a good conversation. And then um, I thought things were good, but then, you know, you, I, I'm trying to even remember the details of this because it's so vague, because I just didn't understand what happened. We had a good conversation, and I thought we were on the same page. I was really glad that this person talked so candidly to me and was willing to engage in a dialogue. But then, now here we are after that, maybe a week or so after, they blocked me, and this is silly, really, but this person has still blocked me. And I have sent multiple emails in inquiring the source of the lack of communication or frustration or, you know, why, why this person blocked me. Um, and this individual is like in the same kind of realm that I work in. And I would love to be able to promote their stuff and their, their content, their work. But I can't because I'm blocked. I'm confused and I'm hurt by it because I made every attempt to reconcile and have invited them to be on the podcast as well to talk about this. Not necessarily this issue, but the topic at hand, which I think I was blocked for. Um, but there's been no response and no reciprocation on their end. So I say that, I wasn't going to share it, but I say that because I want to, again, advocate for a very, I keep using the stupid word nuance, but I want to be careful how we put information on social media. It's so much either a all or nothing way of looking at a topic sometimes it's whether it's like politics where you're if you're on the right side of the political spectrum you tend to get more and more content that's reinforcing that echo chamber of um, hearing the right wing side of things and then all of a sudden you're 
you're entrenched in your position even more because you won't receive the algorithm doesn't allow for the other perspective the other side of things they they know you're not going to like it so they don't push it and this is how people get in like the rabbit hole of like youtube videos and conspiracy theories because you watch one i've heard it say like if you watch one youtube video you can click on like then um a series of maybe like 10 next recommended 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 and then before you get to a conspiracy theory like it's <laughs> it's almost it's almost like the six degrees of separation, right? So you can get to a conspiracy theory very easily on YouTube based on the algorithms. Similarly, our social media feeds just tell us what we want to hear and what we already believe. So this is a very minor example of, you know, just listen to the other perspective, the other side of things. Maybe there's a solution we're not thinking about. And I always want to be collaborative and work with people to find those solutions instead of just whining about it and complaining and bitching and moaning that we're not getting enough money. It's true. It is very true. And it's a shame because of the implications that has for the privilege in conservation in the careers that we have because of the implications that can have with diversity and socioeconomic status and class and all sorts of ingrained problems that are in our industry, which is not just the conservation industry. But yeah, let's be careful how we hear perspectives and hear how we hear diverse voices. I have said that because I'm also going to be probably pulling a little bit back on social media from voicing some of my opinions. I don't want to call out entities. I want to call them in, which the difference is if you're calling someone out, you're blasting them on social media, posting something for all the world to see that they have done wrong, whether they know it or not. Um, <laughs> and that has hurt me because I didn't know I was doing something wrong. Yeah, I changed. Yes, I've grown. And I've been blasted for something when I really wish an individual or someone would come to me personally and say, hey, why don't you make this change? Gladly. I'd be happy to. I just didn't know. So I want to give other people, organizations, and, you know, groups the kindness and respect to just go to them first. And if they're not making change, then that's a problem. <sighs> so, yeah. There's, uh, there's more I have to say on this, but I'm going to kind of move on from here uh, so that I don't ramble about this for too long. I'm kind of past the point of being hurt about it. I've just accepted that this is not a personal attack. I was really hurt at first when I had this person block me and, and another person blocked me too, even though I reached out and said, hey, let's talk about this. And it was just a shutdown. Um, it took months for me to get over that, which is probably more about my self-worth and my value as an individual, but a lot of mental health stuff came up. And now I'm just looking at it from a psychological viewpoint. I know it's not personal. It's just interesting to see the way social media makes us behave. Like, it promotes this outrageous, the outrageous things, the controversial or the extreme and so I just want to have a more inclusive discussion about all this. And again, I'm saying all this because I'm concerned that 
This points to a bigger problem in our society, but the lack of clear, two-sided, or multiple points of view dialogue with humans. When we're engaging with machines and algorithms and computers, we don't need to think critically. Let's think critically about stuff before we just blast someone and post something hurtful. I love podcasts, which is why I'm doing this podcast, but I listen to other podcasts that I'd like to share, like Hidden Brain is a really good one. It's an NPR-produced podcast, very popular. And one of the episodes that kind of changed my perspective and my life, really, was called Red Brain, Blue Brain, or something like that. Like, it was about... I think it was before the election, the Trump. No, 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 no. Trump was already elected. And, um, you know, I don't understand. I personally have a hard time understanding why people supported him. But listening to that episode helped me grasp the fact that there are people who are more just ingrained um, psychologically to have fear be the driver for their actions and um, want stability and um, fear change more than anything else. And um, I still struggle to say it because I'm like, I don't want to offend anyone, but that's my people-pleasing attitude. All of it to say, I think hearing from a balanced viewpoint is the way to go. Like, let's just listen to the other side and maybe put ourselves in their shoes on why someone would vote a certain way or why they might be thinking something that's totally opposite of what I believe and what I think. Just, we need to try. We need to try to learn and hear their perspective. Again, many many caveats with that because there's a lot of times where people don't engage and that's frustrating but hidden brain has been a podcast that's been helpful to understand the psychology behind human needs and desires and wants and why we're in the political climate we're in basically at least if if you're in the united states there is an episode called public shaming by um the podcast In the Gray, I've mentioned them before. And yeah, it's just talking about the harm that public shaming can do. And that's why I'm not going to do that. Um, other episodes or other podcasts. Oh man, I made, I had a few more in my mind. I'll probably add some in the resources and links. And you're probably wondering what this all has to do with conservation. And in the scheme of the grand scheme of things, nothing really. Uh, it just... <laughs> it's just where I stand as my personal ethos and my viewpoint in interacting and engaging in this dialogue about low pay, underpaid conservationists. I'm really, really strongly passionate that we need to find solutions and I want to hear people's stories and perspectives and make effective change without hurting and bashing and making a problem worse. Because I think another issue is if we just call out organizations, you know, it might be helpful. There's time and place for that probably. But there is also uh, the fear 
the potential that an organization will hear our complaints and be like, oh, that's ridiculous. I'm not going to do anything about it. And the people who complain are just um, off the wall. And it can kind of backfires. And like, there's also this tension between like generational styles. So for example, um, if you're generally speaking, very general terms, if you're like a baby boomer or Gen Z, uh, the tendency is to think like you just work hard and have this grin and bear it attitude. And as a millennial myself, I kind of, I've heard that from my parents. I heard that from my society around me. And I think there is a, there's validity in that, like grin and bear it, like just tough it out. But at some point, millennials and Gen Xers have seen, no, wait, I'm getting that backwards. <laughs> if you're a baby boomer or a Gen Xer, I get Gen X and Gen Z confused. Gen Z is the really young kids. Okay, okay. Um, so if you're a baby boomer or Gen Xer, then you might think like you just put your head down and grin and bear it, and that's the attitude we have to go with. And again, there is a time and place for that. I am a millennial. I'm like right smack dab in the millennial range. I was born in 1988. So... I heard that growing up and I thought that's how I was supposed to act. But I think so many millennials have seen that we have done that. We have put our heads down and we have like just tried to slug our way through the society that we're in. We've worked the 40 plus hours a week. We've taken out the student loans. We've done the stuff. And what has it gotten us? Tons of student debt. Uh, no money for mortgages and inflation like crazy. Like, no, I graduated college right after the Great Recession, 2010. Not a great time to graduate college. I don't recommend it. But it really led to this cohesive vision where we're all in this together. Like all of these freshly college, freshly graduated college grads are thrust into a world where there are hardly any jobs and an economy failing. And you're like, what the hell? <laughs> like, I did all the things. I did everything right. I got the degree. I got the master's degree. I was a straight A student. And where has it gotten me? $4 an hour? Doing a job I love? Sure, it's a job I love. I'll take it. But come on. Like, and I am not alone. This is not just me. I'm not the only one. I thought I was the only one. I thought I just had to tough it out. And just grin and bear it. That's what you do in conservation. You work hard. It's for a good cause. It's a passion job. At least you're getting paid in experiences and sunrises, right? It's a shame. It really is. So the younger generation, millennials, Gen Zers, I got to write that down, they are saying this is not right, this is not okay, and I agree, but I think an older generation is like, well, it worked for me, I worked hard, and now I have this job, why can't you? And the reality is there's just not enough jobs, guys, it's it's true, 
I wish I could snap my fingers and say that there will be enough jobs in conservation for people to do what they love in the world of wildlife. And this growing, beautiful industry that takes passion and purpose and all of these things, I wish there were enough jobs, but there are not. And so what we're coming up against is this frustration and fear of young people who can't find any work or they have to pay to work, which is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. <sighs> so here we are at the beginning of season two. Let's talk solutions. Let's talk about it. Let's keep having these conversations and share episodes with your friends. Please keep uh, the keep the ideas and comments and love flowing. Please rate this, review it on Apple Podcasts, especially because of their algorithm. It means we get seen more. Um, yeah. I would also like to just put in a word that if you know who you are, this, this person at the beginning of my episode here, this individual who has blocked me, I know if you're listening, like I want to have a conversation with you. I want to reconcile this friendship that we had. Please reach out. Please explain to me what I did wrong. I, I would like to know because I am just confused and you won't respond to my emails. So just let me know. And ha I'd love to have you on the podcast and hear your thoughts and perspectives because I do believe everyone's thoughts and perspectives are valid. So let me know how we can make this right. I just don't want to be a doormat anymore. Um, that's what comes with people pleasing. You tend to let people walk on you a little bit. And I am not putting up with that. So let me uh, take a quick break here, quick, take a quick sip of water, and we will get back to my conversation. So I do want to clarify the three layers of confusion, I guess, when it comes to unpaid work and conservation. So first you have just a volunteer position where you're volunteering your time and energy because you believe in a cause. It's altruistic. It's this out of the goodness of your own heart kind of thing. Um, and yeah, sometimes you do pay for that experience because actually working with charismatic species or in a touristy location, there are nonprofits out there who need the money and need the finances, and you're willing to give of your time and resources and money in order to have this volunteer experience. That differs from an unpaid job, right? So a job would be someone has a list of requirements, you have to have a certain degree, certain certifications, um, maybe certain skills that, that not a lot of people have. So if you are talented, skilled, have degrees, have experience, and you're working an unpaid job, that's the problem here. And so many of us find ourselves in this position where we're not volunteering out of the goodness of our heart. We're literally doing jobs that are unpaid or very, very, very low pay. So some questions to ask would be like, does it feel like a job? Does it have a list of requirements, not just in qualifications that are needed for the job, but the time frame? So a job would be considered, you know, a field position where you're working from 
April to June. So for those two months, you have to do that task that has been assigned to you. And if you're not getting paid, that's a problem. And I would not recommend taking that at all. Uh, Is there autonomy? I mean, I've talked about this before, but like, can you say, no, I don't feel like doing this, volunteering this work today. And how will the organization respond if they say, no, you must show up and you signed up for this and this is what we expect of you. It's so tricky. Like I would have a hard time supporting a nonprofit or a research organization that demands that you be there every day. That's really, really dicey to me. Like that would be very difficult. Um, so the, the difference between unpaid jobs and volunteering from an altruistic intent or goodness of your heart kind of point of view. And I've heard someone say, as soon as a volunteer position has qualifications, so this person needs to have a certain set of skills or degrees to get the position, uh, terms of employment, and a job description, it should be a paid position. And while I agree mostly with this, I it's like 95% because there are certain voluntary positions that, um, that have job descriptions simply because the n- nonprofit or the organization is taking a lot of time and energy to find the right people to help them volunteer. Again, I don't know if that's good, bad, one thing or the other. And I'm going to talk about how I don't think nonprofits and research projects sh- should rely on volunteers because it's unsustainable in the first place. You need to be able to pay your workers and pay your people (laughs) a fair wage for the work that's being done. But that is, it does take a lot of work on the side of a nonprofit to get the right people to come down to make sure that they are mentally stable and can handle, you know, two weeks in the rainforest or something like that. Again, it's not a job, but it could be a little bit tricky when everything kind of gets out in the open and the nonprofits then are dealing with someone who was not prepared for the voluntary position that was offered and the expectations were not clear. So let's make clear expectations. Let's not make people work for free. Let's give them autonomy. Let's give them flexibility and let's make sure that they're not doing this just to add to a resume and build that up. Again, I know (laughs) this is so tricky because I'm like, I I can see it from both sides. Like I I can see how you want to get that volunteer position and then get that unpaid job potentially and then add it to your resume because we need that. Like we need to add things to your resume. Uh, So it gets very dicey. It's not a one size fits all. So I hope you can see the complex, the, the complexity and this like tension that's pitting conservationists against conservationists. And I just think there's more that needs to be done to work through this and think critically about this. And then the third layer is gonna be like the internship um, or an intern position, which I'll talk about a little bit down the road. And there's nuances there too, which are very complicated. So volunteer, unpaid job, and internship are the kind of the three layers that we're dealing with. All right, I still feel like I'm kind of jumping all over the place a little bit, but I'll just keep talking. I, again, want to make sure that when we talk about unpaid work, we're not 
getting mad at the wrong people. So many of us are early career conservationists who don't have the jobs that we want yet, right? So let's think about this critically again. Let's say you want a job at a nonprofit. A lot of the people who work at these nonprofits aren't getting paid to, and I've said that before, and I'll keep saying it again. They're underpaid conservationists just like you, but they just have either had a little bit more luck in life or are older and come from that different generation. So they're not doing it to hurt us, you know? It's not like it's an intentional, I'm going to suppress the young people who want to be conservationists by not paying them. Comparatively, let's compare it to a different situation. You know, like Amazon, a huge company led by a billionaire where they're not paying their employees. Different, entirely different situation. A lot of this capitalistic movement that I am in favor of, like changing capitalism so that the young people, generally underpaid workers, uh, those maybe even less educated are getting fair pay and those that are working the hardest are getting their fair benefits and fair share, fair slice of the pie. Call it what you want, socialism, communism, it's not, but whatever. It's only fair, it's only right that we listen to people's stories, hear their perspectives, whatever their background, whatever their history is. And that includes the people who are in conservation organizations who are in their director position. So that's why this season I will be talking to people who have worked with nonprofits, started nonprofits, run nonprofits, make the decisions on where the money goes so that we can hear from them too. It all comes back to money, always. And conservation is not a field like uh, an Amazon you know, business. It's not an industry that just makes bukus amounts of money. Like, go listen to my TED Talk. There's literally two ways that most conservation organizations get funding, grants and private donors. That's not sustainable. We need more ways to get funds. So it leads me to think, like, nonprofits are run differently. Some nonprofits focus more on the fundraising side of things, some focus more on programming and making money that way through educational or trips or things like that. Some um, focus more on the grant writing aspect. And it's just not a, a balanced system. Nonprofits can't, nonprofits should be held accountable, but we also need to give grace and space for them to grow because there's already such limited funding, they're, stretch, they're stretched so thin that if they're not paying people well, like it sucks and I'm sure they hate that, but we need to at least give them the chance to get more funds first <laughs> and see how they distribute that, right? So I hope that makes sense. Like I am definitely on the side of the angry conservationists, like there's an account too. A lot of this conversation started because on Instagram, there's a new account that came out called Frustrated Conservationist, which I suggest you go follow, Frustrated Conservationist. And it's an on anonymous account that's kind of calling out these organizations and these institutions that are not paying well, and they're doing all of the wrong things. And I agree, <laughs> I agree. 
I just don't want to be the one to call them out. I want to give people a chance to grow. So yeah, let's make sure that we're getting mad at the right people. Mm, I don't think we should be getting mad at the conservationists who are trying to save the planet too. I think we should be getting mad at the system and that system is capitalism. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's, it's true. Do you think that we could change capitalism? Maybe if we all band together, but I doubt that's going to happen until eco-socialism is a thing. And I'm going to actually look up what the definition of eco-socialism is really quick because I love this idea. I just want to make sure I'm getting it right. And it's this idea that, again, the right-wing people, my dad might listen to this and just hate it. <laughs> I know. He's already cringing. He was cringing when he listened to my TED Talk. So um, this idea of eco-socialism. So it says, Eco-socialism, also known as green socialism or a socialist economy, no, socialist ecology, excuse me, is an ideology merging aspects of socialism with that of green politics, ecology, and alter-globalization alter or anti-globalization. Uh, I'm not really sure what the anti-globalization parts are necessarily, but I'll read what Wikipedia says, which, by the way, donate to Wikipedia if you can. Eco-socialists generally believe that the expansion of the capitalist system, <clears throat> excuse me, eco-socialists generally, generally believe that the expansion of the capitalist system is the cause of social exclusion, poverty, war, and economic, I cannot read, oh my gosh, environmental degradation through globalization and imperialism under the supervision of repressive states in transnational structures. Hmm, yeah, that's, that's me especially the part about environmental degradation. Um, capitalism causes environmental degradation for sure. Imperialism, that's, you know, I don't know how imperialism is different from colonialism. That's something I'd like to look into. But uh, there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of sociology behind this. There's a lot of ideology intertwined in all this. And let's get mad at the system, you know? Let's get mad at the right people because we're not going to fix it if we don't get to the root of the problem. <sighs> so I say that because arguing on social media might not be effective. In the Instagram um, live I had about unpaid work and conservation, I just kind of pointed out some of the arguments that I hear and see on the Wildlife Workers Network or the Wildlife Science Career Network Facebook pages. And there's just a lot of anger and there's a lot of how dare you not pay? How dare you do this? And I, I get it. I, again, I'm just going to keep saying this. Like, I get it. I really do. I'm angry too. I just want to make sure we're getting angry at the right people, you know, guys? Not the people who are trying to protect the planet too. Not the people who are trying to, you know, have given up their entire lives to um, start a nonprofit or start a rehab center in some random part of the world who's just looking for some volunteers. Let's think about it. And then let's shift the paradigm away from capitalism instead of just bashing and anger and frustration. Yeah. Um, there was another thing I wanted to say. Oh yeah. So if you are an early career conservationist, I get the frustration. Like I'm right there with you. I understand. Um, but it, it feels, it feels counterintuitive and I'll explain why. Let me let me get my thoughts out. So 
So I'm going to say something a bit controversial, and I just need to be really, really clear that what I'm about to say excludes all of the organizations that are blatantly exploitative. Um, if, if there's organizations out there that just take advantage of people and abuse the system, like I'll talk about later, I'll share some of the thoughts from Dr. Valkamen's paper on reflections of unpaid work and conservation, which I link in the show notes. I'm not talking about those ones that are just abusing people and exploiting and charging way too much money for not a good cause. That's not what we're referring to here. I'm, and I'm also not saying we should support unpaid work at all as a viable solution. That's not what I'm saying either. Some of the people doing this work on like advocating for never taking unpaid work are paid biologists. Like one person I know has a full-time paid job as a biologist and that's all well and good for this person. Um, and then they can go and turn around and say to other early career conservationists, like don't take that unpaid job, rather unpaid work, I should say, just any unpaid work even though it's going to get them a foot in the door to get a career just like the one you have. Or don't go travel to volunteer to help that, that thing because it's exploitation, according to them, even if it really isn't exploitation. Even though a lot of times we need it on our, inter- or we need it on our resumes to boost them. Not saying that that's right. Not saying that's the way it should be. But the way, it's the way it is. And until we change the system and find solutions, that's the way it's going to be. So I, I get the, the heart behind it. Like we shouldn't be taking these jobs because it makes the system worse for all. But is that really what's going to happen? If push comes to shove, if you're an early career conservationist who's dying to get the work and wants to make it work in this industry, are you really going to say no to an unpaid job? Well, you should say no to the unpaid job, but like a paid a volunteer or a, a voluntary experience that will get your foot in the door. If you can afford it and you can handle it and make that all work out for you, are you going to say no to it just to make the system better for everyone? No, because someone else is going to step in and take it and do it anyway. Again, not saying that it's right. Not saying that's the way it should be, but we need experience too. You need experience too. Until we change the system, the structure, where money's coming from, how to redistribute the wealth, it's just the way it is. There are those people advocating for not taking unpaid work because it leads to the privileged, generally white conservation careers that we have been seeing and I talk about that too and that's a huge problem but there are other solutions so when I say don't feel guilty for taking voluntary or low pay opportunities because you want to make the system better for all like the diversity issue and uh, solving this problem in conservation that we have yeah don't feel guilty about that there are other ways that we can bring more diversity inclusion and solutions to our industry that don't involve individuals not taking work that they're really passionate about that support good organizations. So I'll talk about the solutions in a little bit. And again, I've mentioned Conservation Nation. They're a nonprofit that is working to make the change 
necessary in our industry, especially for underrepresented groups to get into conservation fields and careers, go support them. There are other ways to solve this problem. And if you get a chance, listen to Stephanie Shetler's podcast episode. She's the fancy scientist. She has an episode on money and talking all about money. And um, I don't agree with everything 100%, but it's true that if you are in nonprofit work and you need assistance and there are people lining up asking you to get free help, like why wouldn't you take it? I just don't think the model of unpaid work or unpaid internships is going to change anytime soon. I think it should, but I don't think it's going to because there is such a need for organizations to get extra help and there's the need on the other end for young people to get the experience. And But there are other solutions to this and that's what I'll talk about. But to be very clear, the impetus does lie on the organizations to not offer unpaid positions in the first place. Do not offer them. So I posted some questions regarding unpaid work on the Wildlife Science Career Network Facebook page. And I originally worded it um, talking about the ethical considerations before taking unpaid positions. And thankfully, David, commented, for so many, the ethical considerations come down to not getting other offers at the start. So he argued that the script should be changed from the ethical considerations before taking unpaid work as a choice, which isn't always a choice, to the ethical considerations before offering unpaid positions for organizations. And I fully agree and support this. I think Organizations, nonprofits, researchers need to be very, very careful about offering unpaid work. Voluntary is different. If someone wants to volunteer out of the kindness of their heart um, to, you know, a few hours a week where it's not a job, it is very clearly not a job that they're not getting paid for. They have autonomy, they have flexibility. That's a different story. But we have to get clear on what unpaid work is, where it's a job that's just not paid versus volunteering and um, how you present that to your resume, how you add that to your job history and experience. All of these different things are worth talking about and having a dialogue about. I did get a few other comments that I'd like to share when asked. I asked people what's the difference between unpaid work and volunteering. And some of the comments I got are um, volunteering is less frequent, like a few hours a week. Um, Some person said no more than 10 hours a week instead of a full-time job. Volunteers tend to have less responsibilities and obligations than interns or employees. Volunteers always maintain the ability to say no or opt out when they're unavailable, which is not possible in an unpaid job, right? So volunteering is something you do in your free time because you're passionate about and you have fun doing it. But this person says that in our field, in conservation biology, it's too often more of an obligation, something we have to do in order to get the experience needed to land a job. It's true and sad. (laughs) So another person said volunteering can be written on a resume differently than like an unpaid job. So if you're working an unpaid job, you can add it under work experience, but 
if you're just volunteering, you add it under voluntary experience. So that's a good point too. Here's another comment. Volunteering feels more free. Unpaid work feels more restrictive and more commitment is required, which is ironic because both positions are being done for free, yet only one of them feels freeing. That's a really good point too. So thank you so much, Eva, for that comment. So please don't feel guilty if you're out there looking for a job and someone tells you not to take unpaid work or not to volunteer your time or not to travel overseas. If you're going with an organization that's responsible and really making meaningful change, again, I can run through my list of five um, questions that you would want to ask nonprofits or research institutions. So first of all, I would make sure that they're very transparent in where the funding is going. That most nonprofits, if you're in America at least, if you're a 501c3, you should have a 990 tax return, which will be transparent on all of your financial uh, transactions and everything. So you can go look that up if the organization is not forthcoming with it. Um, another good point that Nick from Conservation Careers pointed out was that, you know, look at the former employees of some organization and see how many former employees are actively supporting that organization. That's a really good tell. Like if you used to work there or you used to support them and now you're not working for them, do you still support them? Do you still find that it's a good investment? Do you still think the organization is doing good things? It takes a lot of digging and it takes a lot of research, but it is worth it to make sure that you're traveling, volunteering with supporting the best organizations. So transparency of funds, are they promoting animal welfare, animal well-being, ethical science, um, contributing to research projects, contributing to peer-reviewed studies? And again, peer-reviewed studies can be like, oh, it's just an ivory tower kind of thing. Putting that aside for now, are they contributing to research? Like I've said before, I did a voluntary position with an organization that's now defunct. And I was under the impression that according to the job description, which it wasn't a job, so again, <laughs> side note, I'm derailing, but it was on Texas A&M, the job description said that you will be contributing to science. You will be contributing to this research project. Yet when you got there, there's no science being done. It's all observation and it's all collected for what? For what purpose? There was no way that it was contributing to the peer-reviewed scientific endeavor that we as a society go back to. So it felt kind of, felt wishy-washy. It felt problematic in that. Oh, so again, the expectation is very different from the reality. Animal welfare, of course, is a huge issue. I think, you know, most, most conservationists now are just like, okay, if it doesn't, if it disregards the animals and doesn't take their well-being into consideration, like I'm not even going there. So there's plenty of accounts you can follow that do that. Danielle for Wildlife, Connie Needham, um, Laro Travels, research your organization and make sure that they're doing the best work for the animals. Third question, are they actively decolonizing? especially if this is an organization led or run or founded by a white or white passing person, how are they making sure that they're not in, infusing 
white supremacist ideology and white science into the culture of an indigenous community. And I can say this all from my very comfortable chair in the United States and say this with the hopes that everyone is doing that in the world. But in reality, I know that that looks differently and there's a lot of complications and nuances and that's hopefully where the organization is going. You know, even if things look different on the surface, you want to see an organization growing and taking steps, active steps towards decolonization. So that's super important. You want to hear and employ local people. You want to hear from their perspective. Always make sure that the nonprofit, the organization, is putting funds back into local communities, employing locals, and advocating for economic streams of revenue wherever you travel. So that's three. Um, I'm blanking now. <laughs> Four was, oh, hearing like from the volunteers and interns who have worked there previously. That's a really good indication. What have people been saying? And again, that takes some digging and it takes some research, but that's important. So I started a review database of conservation organizations. And again, it's up there. It's still there. I will link it in the show notes. It exists, but it's a very bare bones website. It's slow loading. I paid for it. And then I was disappointed with like how much I would have to pay more to get all of the features that I wanted in it. And maybe one day I'll come back to it. I'm not sure. But it exists. And you can look at some reviews from cons for conservation organizations. Or even better yet, you can go on there and add your own reviews. That would be awesome. Please do that. <laughs> that would mean a lot if you could actually use and contribute to this database. It's not perfect, but that's where we're going. Uh, yeah, and a lot of the reviews I pulled anyway from like Facebook or Glassdoor or TripAdvisor. So reviews nonprofit organizations, how employees have been treated, how, what other people think of the organization. And then for like ecotourism companies, you know, that's a different type of review. That would be like a TripAdvisor or a Yelp review um, to gauge what people think about them. But really, I want to hear from you. We are the ones that make the difference. We're the ones that make the change. So that was number four. Talk to people who have worked for them, volunteered for them, interned with them in the past, and see what they say. And then the fifth one is just like, are they doing effective conservation overall? Do you feel like this organization is contributing to conservation or not? <laughs> and that kind of goes back to the science aspect. Oh, so... Yeah, this is heavy, but this is what's on my brain. This is what I think about a lot. I'm going to try to lighten it up a little bit and just share that I did post a very fun reel. It's been on my <laughs> on Instagram. It's been on my mind for years because I have taken ridiculous pictures of me in this stupid field getup garb and all the crazy stuff that we have to wear when we're out there doing biology, like from, you know, a box that I was carrying that held the birds inside each of these like containers, very heavy and very ridiculous. The 
mosquito netting, the tall boots, the layers of clothing, even in 110 degree weather, <laughs> the apron, like I just, we just have to do kind of ridiculous things sometimes in order to make biology happen. And it's poking fun at that because I don't care what I look like, but if I can make light of it, it's, it's worth it. So go check that out. I'm calling it Fieldwork Fashion. And I'd love for you to share your own Fieldwork Fashion photos and looks so I can see what everyone else has come up with. All right. So getting back to unpaid work. We had a really good discussion on Instagram Live about this unpaid work and how it just it just feels so unfair that we have to do it. But that's the way things are. And unfortunately, <laughs> I wish I had more sustainable solutions. Um, I do have some solutions, such as more grant money and more funding overall. Uh, we could change the grant requirements. So this is a really important thing that you can advocate for and you can do on your own is to ask the nonprofit organizations or to ask the researchers if they could include more money in their grants for overhead, for technicians, for field assistance. It takes so much work. I don't think people realize how much work it takes to do the field biology portion of research projects. It's kind of like, it's kind of been an oversight or afterthought in a lot of projects. So here's an example. I know that grants don't have a lot of money for the overhead. I know that the grants are specifically for the equipment or for the um, postdocs lab analysis. And at the very bottom of the barrel comes money for the people actually doing the work. And we're saying that that's not okay anymore. And I don't blame like the principal investigators and the postdocs and the grad students, those running the projects. It's just this the system, like, I don't blame them for my low pay job. I was just like, that's the way it is. But now we're kind of standing up and saying, we need more. Like, we need to get paid more. We need to get paid what we're worth. And we really need to um, hopefully change the system, change the grant requirements. And so that might involve going to, like, whoever's writing the grant or whoever's doling out the grant money and requesting that they understand the implications of not paying technicians and how a project can't get done and the imp implications that, that comes with uh, low pay, the diversity issue. Like some, I'm a mom, I am not able to travel as much, um, but I do, have a, I do have the privilege of having a partner who's able to support me. But people who don't, they're SOL. And then that leads to all sorts of other systemic problems. So making sure that there's enough money in the grant itself to fund technicians and field assistance is key. But money is complicated. I'm going to share another story. And this past spring, I worked for an organization called the Tennessee River Gorge Trust. I love them. I've been um, assisting them for many years. And I got paid to do belted kingfisher surveys. I got to request my own salary and say, I believe I am worth this much. 
and this is how much I expect, which was a privilege. So I thank you for listening to me. Yet in my brain, I've never gotten paid what I'm worth. And so there's this mental conflict of I'm out there every morning. I was busting my ass to find these kingfishers and to get really good looks at them. I knew, I know I did everything within my time, energy, money, power, and my skill set, because I have over a decade of experience, like <laughs> to see these kingfishers and to get looks at their legs. Because <laughs> the job was to recite their legs so that I could see if they were banded or not. I got some looks, some good looks. None of them were banded, which was very frustrating because then I started to doubt myself. Am I, are they, you know, the right birds? Am I really seeing what I think I'm seeing? And I didn't think I should be getting paid for this work. I was working every day for about a month. And I still was like, I shouldn't be getting paid. I, I am not doing the job right. The birds aren't cooperating. And... Therefore, I shouldn't be charging a nonprofit organization X amount to pay me to do this work. And that's how I felt, even though it was totally justifiable, even though it was right and well within my means. I still had that residual guilt of, oh, I'm privileged. Oh, I can't afford this. Oh, it hurts to like not be able to do a good job. And therefore, I don't think I should be taking their money. We need to get paid what we're worth. And I'm glad that I stood my ground. Um, but it came with a lot of conflicted emotions. <sighs> so, yeah, that's interesting. It's just interesting how that all plays out. Uh, we need to write more. Here's another thing you can do. You can write more. Just not just... Um, you know, I'm not just talking about peer-reviewed papers, but I'm talking about blogs and articles and writing into uh, nonprofit organizations directly and asking for these changes, advocating for change, writing pieces on social media, sharing information to get more funds to conservation, and, you know, sharing something like my TED Talk or sharing some posts that you heard or read all advocating for these changes that are needed. So I, I, that's something I'd like to grow more in. I want to write like some opinion pieces for journals or articles or magazines even and share my thoughts on that. But I, <laughs> I have an excuse. I, have, I haven't had time, first of all. Second of all, I have two kids. That's crazy enough. And then, like, my excuse is, like, adult ADHD. I can't write a paper. But I can. You can. You can. We all need to. Uh, clear definitions is another so potential solution or another, like, stepping stone in the way of solutions. So internship is defined very generally and very broadly throughout the world. So when we say pay our interns, that can mean multiple things. And I'm not going to go into it too much necessarily, but just know that like some countries have requirements for college students to do this internship. And let's say, I can't remember which country it is. Um, I know the United States doesn't have a, a 
full-on requirement, but some universities and some colleges and some programs specifically do have a requirement that you do an internship. So if a college student has the ability and wants to travel to, say, Nicaragua to do a sea turtle conservation internship where they pay for it because they're probably paying minimal food, housing, some training, which is necessary, then, yeah, that money goes back to a nonprofit. And if the nonprofit's doing good things, let them have it. Let them have it. But because they're called an intern and because it is an internship, the argument is that they should never pay. No, I don't. It's just unclear definitions and unclear verbiage on what we mean by intern or internship. And that's not a problem I can solve. But we can, you know, work together. At least understand it. Yeah, so, oh, here's another solution. I'm looking at my list. Get in these freaking jobs and make the system better. Make it better for all. Become an executive director of a nonprofit and say you're not going to pay for, uh, you're not going to pay less than minimum wage for these environmental education roles. I am on the board for a nonprofit and I've had to fight really hard to get fair wages um, for some people. <laughs> and I vote no against anything that doesn't pay them what they're worth. Do I get outvoted? Oftentimes, because money is a thing and lack of money is a thing. And the argument is, well, we can't pay them, we can't pay them. But as we know from my interview with Jesse and from talking to multiple people in the nonprofit realm, if we're not pay paying our employees well, they're going to leave anyway. We can't retain good help if we're not paying them. So it is a double-edged sword. I feel for many nonprofits who don't have the ability to pay their employees well or pay themselves well if you're running a nonprofit or an organization. I feel that pain. But it will be good in the long run if maybe we hire less people and pay them better. Or we just set clear expectations on what is a volunteer and making sure the volunteers are treated well and they're taken care of and they're not abused or manipulated or exploited. We need to make sure that, you know, nonprofits are getting different diverse streams of revenue so that it not it doesn't just come from volunteer money, pay to volunteer money, or you know, potential internships, colleges. It, it's got to come from a variety of sources. And that's been the system for so long, this like pay to intern or pay to volunteer for a lot of nonprofits that that's just kind of the way it is and the where they're getting a lot of their funding. But I do believe that projects that rely on volunteers are at best unsustainable and at worst exploitative. So I do believe that projects that are reliant on volunteers are at best unsustainable and at worst exploitative. I don't think that every project that relies on a volunteer is exploitative, but it's very unstable and it can't last forever. So we need other solutions. Yeah. And then, again, my call to employees, if you're a hiring manager, if you're in the position of power to make decisions about an organization, do not just hire someone based on their privilege or their ability to travel or their means of getting money or 
what their resume might look like that's flashy and uh, was able to be padded because they could travel the world and experience all these places. We need to treat every potential employee. We need to see all of their opportunities for growth, see how they used the resources they were given to make the best of the situation and grow as a person and grow as a wildlife biologist or conservationist in whatever region they're in, whatever means they had, and whatever life circumstances that they're in. So, yeah, it's just a general call to educate people about that. Okay, and the final solution I can think of is just to educate our youth. We need to talk to young people about why conservation is important. We need to talk to young people about ecosystem services and how if we're destroying our planet, then we're going to die. Um, and most young people know this. Gen Zers are one of the most eco-friendly, eco-aware groups out there. And I give them a lot of credit because good for you for saying that and sticking up and sticking to your guns and making change. You as a generation can make this change. And again, that goes also goes back to like these generational differences, which I don't want to, I don't want to like generalize too much about this, but this is kind of, these are the trends I'm seeing that millennials to some degree and Gen Z are more and more about mental health, emotional health, advocating for yourself, standing up, um, seeing that the mess that we've been handed is maybe where that comes from, capitalism, or whatever problem you think it comes from. And trying to find some solutions to it. We're, saw, we're seeing how that hard work ethic got us nowhere, and we're sick of it. So this is very, this is very theoretical kind of talk and ideological kind of talk, but I really enjoy it. So I would like to have another episode like this where I just kind of spiel and talk about things that are of interest and are, have been on my mind. But yet I also want to interview and talk to people too and hear their stories and their perspectives. So as usual, please let me know if you have any comments, questions, concerns, stories. I've gotten a few stories already and I love hearing that and I cannot wait to have them on the podcast or at least, um, you know, if you record a voice memo or, or something, send it my way and we could put it on the podcast in some form. We can try to get you on the podcast in some form. And honestly, the last thing I'll add and just say as a wrap up is to go listen to, to not listen to, to go read the paper by Ansver Kamen um, at all. I'll link it in the show notes. I am meeting with her soon. And I, I was going to try to summarize some of the takeaways from the paper. It's basically about how citizen scientists, volunteers, volunteerism and um, unpaid internships are affecting our industry and what we can do about it and how to identify the pitfalls. Specifically with volunteerism, you know, so many people engage in this, but there are steep fees and it's unclear where the fees are going. Um, it's marketed to people with no relevant skills and 
it's driven by the customer demands, not conservation priorities. So it tends to focus on charismatic species and you know, red pandas and things like that. And there's just not a lot of positive outcomes. I'll just give a quick summary um, with some of the highlights from the paper. And I have permission to read this from Dr. Verkamen. The relatively short project durations results in high turnover rates in the volunteers and makes it difficult to train volunteers to the required level of technical proficiency. So if you just have volunteers that are there for two, three weeks, it's really difficult to get them up to speed with the tasks that are needed. Even if they really want to get their hands on the ground and do the biology work, um, it, it can have net negative in outcomes. Uh, same with this next statement. Uh, considering Considered within the broader context of tourism impacts, including greenhouse gas emissions from aviation, volunteerism can produce net negative outcomes for the environment and local communities. So that's problematic. Also, there's this neo-colonialist aspect, which they touch on, primarily marketed to a, uh, let me start that again, primarily marketed to a potential clientele of well-resourced, privileged youngsters from the global north, volunteerism has been described as neo-colonialist and symptomatic of white sa savior syndrome. White savior syndrome. Yeah, uh, this has led to the assertion that volunteerism constitutes... <laughs> This has led to the assertion that volunteerism constitutes fictitious conservation, whereby voluntourists extract value from a project site while devaluing local labor, period. For any conservation voluntourism project to be conducted ethically, the risks have to be weighed. Um, so yeah, we just need more companies to make sure that they're aware of this. Because again, if you're going on a voluntourism project, what you Google search for, um, the ones that get the highest ad revenue and marketing dollars are kind of the ones that aren't doing the best work. So we need not stronger commitments from providers. There needs to be more regulation, yada, yada. In some cases, listen to this, in some cases, organizations are brazenly capitalizing on the ambitions of young hopefuls looking to add value to a gap year or improve their CVs with overseas work, work experience while disregarding their their responsibility to safeguard the social, cultural, economic, and environmental resources of local communities. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. So this, that's just only part of the, the paper. It's so good. I recommend reading it. I haven't even gotten to the unpaid intern stuff, but this episode is already long enough, so I'm going to end it here. And um, I will be talking to Dr. Verkamen in a later episode, and we'll kind of unpack this a little bit more. Okay. And then the final things I wanted to talk about were just some um, housekeeping things for the future of the podcast. And I would love to talk to more people. So if you have any ideas for interviews, interviewees, send them my way. I would love to talk to someone who is, um, you know, trans or not this heterosis normative and working in biology or field biology. I would love to talk to indigenous, someone from the indigenous community about what their experience has been like. I know who I know and I know a lot of people that look like me. So I'm trying to intentionally reach out to lots of different people and lots of diverse voices. Um, I am still like kind of on the soft search looking for a co-host. So if this interests you and you want to engage in more dialogue and interviews like this, please let me know. Please, please, please. Especially, 
if you're kind of funny and can bring some lightness to this, because I tend to get really serious. <laughs> so yeah, I also just wanted to say thank you so much to my four interns this semester. Yes, I had four this past spring. And they all got college credit through a local university for the communications major. But I was working so much that I fear that I didn't do a good job with them. So I'm sorry, but they work so hard. Um, Timothy McCurry, Joanna Kasubowski, uh, Mackenzie Street, and Vanessa Willis. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, you guys have worked so hard and have been very patient with me as I'm trying to figure out the direction that Nova Conservation is going in. And I'm trying new things and I'm experimenting with a lot of different things. So I fear that a lot of times they felt like I was doing busy work and it's not, it wasn't busy work, but it was just, I hope to be able to use some of their contributions more effectively. It's just, I'm, I have so many ideas and so many things I want to do and I need to start getting paid. So I'm doing those things first because I need to have a sustainable business model. And then we'll circle back to some of the more ideological other things I want to do. Anyway, that's getting ahead of myself. Also, this is, you know, I'm recording this May 9th, 2022. I've started a Kiva campaign and a Kiva is a zero interest loan for small businesses. And if you'd like to contribute to that, please see the link in the bio, see the resources linked below. I would love it if you would support me in this. It's basically you can give $25 minimum up to you know 500 or something crazy, but you get that money back. This is not a donation. This is not like I'm begging you for your support. This is an investment in me and my idea and my passion and thought behind Nova Conservation to bring more funds to conservation. We just need more sustainable streams of revenue for nonprofits and researchers because we're not getting enough. And that's evident. So this is my way of trying to bring more funds to conservation. And I, I know you know me and I know you know my heart behind this. Like I don't want to abuse or exploit anything or any system in place. So I want to do this ethically and right and make sure that the organizations that are doing the most effective work get the most help. So going to kiva.org and searching for Laura Marsh or Nova Conservation and giving your, I want to say donation. It's not a donation. Your investment which you will get back because I am going to make money and I am going to pay myself finally and maybe pay someone else too. So yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening. Thanks for contributing. Thank you for believing in this work and believing in me. And I look forward to sharing more of my interviews and stories and thoughts with you as we progress. Season two, what's up? Okay. Love you guys. Bye. Thanks for listening. And remember, Ethical conservation needs and deserves funds so that passionate people like you can get paid what they're worth. There's enough money to go around. Let's go get it and use it for the good of our planet.